We're going to probably go ahead and get started. So we're going to do a week two on psychotropic drugs this morning. It's funny, this, this is a talk that I do for ACBC counseling, and I'm given an hour and ten minutes. And the elders asked me to come and say, Ken, you get two weeks to do this. And so I said, great, I have some things I can add. Uh, now I feel like maybe I need three weeks. It's, you know, I'll take what I can get. But any of you guys ever seen the book? It's a children's book called If You Give a Moose a Muffin. <laughs> yeah, he'll want a glass of milk. That's kind of what I am too. Probably good that they limit me so that I'm forced to get everything done at the right time. Well, good morning. I hope some of you were here last week. What we're going to do now is going to be based upon what we studied previous week and some of the, the baseline things that we talked about are going to be important today because we are going to jump into some of the medications um, that we use. Be very specific about that. As a start, I'll do what I did last week and remind you of some good books that I think are very helpful. We're going to quote some of these today. Uh, one is Blame It on the Brain by Ed Welch. This is a great book on how man is designed and some of the concerns about taking responsibility for our sin and not blaming them on a diagnosis. Blame It on the Brain, it's Ed Welch. Um, Good Mood, Bad Mood is a great book by Dr. Charles Hodge, a physician in Indiana. He talks a lot for ACBC. I just love this guy. Um, this Good Mood, Bad Mood is a book written on bipolar. And we're going to talk a little bit about this today, that his research into bipolar and why is it so many people are being diagnosed as bipolar. Uh, as he researched that, it, he really led him into an understanding of how we use antidepressants today. And, and now it's pretty well known about what he was finding out. That's a good book. And then I guess probably my favorite book is, I mentioned this last week, is Will Medicine Stop the Pain? This is by Elise Fitzpatrick and uh, the deceased Dr. Laura Hendrickson, a Christian psychiatrist. And uh, you can still find a lot, many of her lectures online. This is a great book. It's written from women to women. But it's uh, really effective for all of us to understand how medicines uh, are used. And when we have pain in life, how we should look at that. And how do medicines play into that? Which is a lot about what we talk about in biblical counseling. So this is, uh, oh, one more thing. This last year at the conference, the counseling organization, the ABCC, put out a series of essays um, which I think are wonderful. This year's uh, Essays, Volume 3, is on psychotropic drugs. It has lots of really good uh, research. I checked their website this week. It's still not up yet. So this could be your copy to borrow if you find anything interesting to read about or want to know more about. Really good essays they have in there. All right, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your, just your loving kindness that you pour out over us. Thank you that you're patient with us as we learn. Lord, thank you for the medicines and the wisdom that you've given man to help, help with uh, the effects of the fall. We're thankful for those things. 
At the same time, Lord, we want to use them wisely and know where some of the, the questions should be and how to use them in a way that pleases you. So I pray that you would be with us this morning help us discern uh, what is right and wrong, and we trust that, that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we talk about medications, I want us to really start with the Word of God. I'll tell you in about 10 years, most of what I tell you today will be obsolete. Uh, medicines, you, you may remember them or not, I don't know, but things just continue to change. It's really hard to keep up. This, however, endures forever. Amen? And this Word is truth, and we can trust it. So I want to start with uh, Colossians chapter 2. You could turn there. Last week we talked about Colossians 1, and 1 really is great because it talks about the preeminence of Christ, Him high and lifted up. And with that, in uh, verse 22, uh, 23, He leaves us a warning, and we mentioned that a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 21, just to remind us that God is over all things, and He, in verse 20, through Him, He reconciled all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you, here's talking about us now, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. This is a, a good starting point when you think about man and the remedies for our ills. We need to remember who we are by nature. Yet now, yet now he has reconciled you. This is NAS in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Amen? And then he leaves us warning us in verse 23 I mentioned last week, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, have, uh, and I, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. What are some of these things Paul is concerned about that would move, move us away from the hope of the gospel? Uh, some of this is, we talked about last week, this interaction that we have with some of these worldly ideas. He gets more specific in chapter 2. He gets, kind of hones in a little bit on what he's concerned about for the Colossians. I'll start in verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Oh, just think about that. How did you come to Christ? Humility, submission, repenting of your sins, turning your heart to Christ. And that never ends. This is, this is our daily walk, our submission unto Christ. Having been, here's what happened, and what's happening, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. This is a, night, a picture of a tree. I like to think about Psalms 1 and the tree planted by streams of water. yields its fruit, the deep roots that grow. This is the picture that you get here. Um, you've been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed. So there's this teaching you get. From the Bible, God teaches us. It causes us to grow by His Holy Spirit um, and overflowing with gratitude. Does that sound like an emotion? A heart? Something that's coming out of your heart? So here's this picture of a tree producing deep roots, starting bare fruit of thankfulness. This is a picture of what really happens in a person when the gospel comes, transforms us, and we're thankful people. Now, 
Here's some specific warnings. That's what's gone on. Look, see to it, verse 8, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Be on your guard that in anything that would move you away from the hope in Christ, and we have to be very careful because the world and sometimes the medicines that they use can do that if we're not careful. All right, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, Not to get into everything, but uh, week one, we spent a lot of time talking about two basic views of man. One is a duplex versus a monistic view. Duplex view is the scriptures talk about us having a body and a spirit, just very simply. And the worldview looks as, uh, uses a, we would use the term monistic, in that we treat you based just upon your person. In a monistic view, your thoughts and desires comes from this organ here in the brain. And that's, that's all you are, is what your flesh is. We would disagree with that strongly. The Bible says that we have this heart out of the seat of emotions. Out of our heart come all these things. We think that the brain probably is, is what is helping interact with, a, with the you that's here today. And it is able to control and help us influence our body, our muscles, our nerves, and all these things. So this duplex monistic model we talked about last week. We want to re- remember that we're thankful for the medicine that we have. Uh, we're thankful that God has provided positions with wisdom to help us. And in this area of psychotropic drugs, we want to be wise. Um, so we talked about the duplex monistic model last week. Uh, this week, we're going to hit on part two and part three, discuss various categories of the psych drugs. We're going to go, jump right into that. We're talking about a a word called homeostasis, which I really hope you remember that word. And then at part three, we'll talk about uh, drugs and counseling, uh, what the the DSM, Diagnostical Manual of Mental Disorders, is sort of the psychiatric Bible, in the sense that it keeps all the diagnoses from which uh, you you get paid based on what the diagnosis you give people. So there's a whole loop there. Uh, symptom that to try to put you in uh, some diagnosis if you are being seen. All right, let's. Okay, here was our model we left with last time. Here's our duplex model, our inner man, which is our heart, seat of our emotions. Here's the outer man. We talked about how they're always communicating back and forth. Your heart is telling your body how to, how, what to do and, and uh, decisions that it makes. Desires, thoughts, beliefs, and attitudes. At the same time, your physical body is feeding back to your soul if you feel sleepy or tired. Uh, so there's this two-way communication that's happening. And so it would be no surprise uh, that when you take psychotropic medications, since God has designed us with these neurotransmitters and everything else, uh, when you take these medicines, they are going to have an effect on you and on your soul because this communication is going on. It could be for the better if they're doing what they're intended to do, or it could cause, you may suffer some of the side effects, and that could affect you as well. So this is kind of the model that we're working off of. We ask this question, is it sinful? And we can't we try to make it clear that unless the Bible calls it sin, we're not allowed to call it sin. So inherently, uh, medications that we take are not sinful. Uh, that's part A. Part B is, 
We can use anything sinfully, right? Anything we can take and misuse. So we want to be wise with medications. Today, here we are. We're going to jump right into the psychotropic medications. And I like what Dr. Hendrickson does. She divides these up into two main categories. On one side are medications that improve the, your feelings, and those would be drugs like, uh, that will calm you down, anxiolytics, and lift you up uh, for antidepressants to affect your feeling. Then over here we have a set of drugs that help clear confused thinking. So I think it's very helpful. Here we have the antipsychotics and, and drugs for schizophrenia and some of these bizarre behaviors. It's helpful if you keep these two uh, things in mind. It helps organize. So we're really talking about four main classes of medications. On one hand, the antidepressants and, and anti-anxiety medicines. On the other hand, drugs to, like uh, for schizophrenia, antipsychotics, you would say. All right. Let's talk about this first class of medications to help improve feelings. These would be the relaxants. Now, I've included opiates here, too. And the federal government also will include opiates in, in psychotropic uh, effects uh, in some of their discussions because it has, such a, it has a relaxing effect on you, uh, particularly, obviously, if you're in pain. Uh, these opiates deal with pain, but they also relax the mind. Uh, if you're counseling someone or maybe yourself, uh, there's a lot of issues that we need to think about. There is a real opiate epidemic that's gone on. We talked a little bit last week how the government really fueled that uh, by making sure everyone got a pain scale. And if you registered anywhere above zero, we made sure that that wasn't good. You, you got penalized if you didn't treat someone that was having pain, and so we really created this, the monster that we see now. These drugs are uh, controlled in that you need special prescriptions, and there's, there's limits on how we handle them. Uh, there is an, a, an issue. Uh, Dr. Hendrickson, uh, before she passed, dealt with cancer, and I remember one of her talks, she talks about, and this is important for counseling, that uh, she took some of these opiates in her cancer pain because it helped her Really, she was having a hard day. The pain was really getting to her, and they, they helped her. And then she was very honest. She said, some days I just took it because I wanted to feel good. So we have to be careful of how we're using the medicines in the right way. And when you're talking to someone, um, be aware that, that that can be an issue. We're using them the way they're intended. We include alcohol here. That for sure is a relaxant. We don't want to overuse those for sure. That would be known as drunkenness. And my computer just went out. Did I do? It's coming up. It'll take a minute. Yeah, I think my battery charger's out. I'll just continue on. Y'all track with me. I think you have your notes there. Um, so alcohol, we would include in that as well. We know about drunkenness. We know about uh, long-term liver damage that that can do. But it, it, does, it, does it calm people down? In some cases, it does. In other ways, it, it uh, opens up other barriers. So there's a real problem with alcohol. Then we talk about some of the tranquilizers that we use. Uh, these would be the anti-anxiety medications, this first class of drugs that 
would try to relax us. Uh, this would include sedative hypnotics that helps put you to sleep. A large class of these are the benzodiazepines. This is a very common group. I've, I've listed the, the brand names here, but I, I think maybe we should probably use generic names now because we hardly know them by that. I'll probably have to change this. But uh, drugs like Valium, which is diazepam, uh, is an older medication we still use. Uh, we use a lot of a drug called Ativan, which is lorazepam, Xanax, which is alprazolam. And we even have a hierarchy here of drugs that we like in this class, of drugs that we don't like in this class. Uh, drugs like, like Valium move in really quickly, and it gives people sometimes, it's a little more addictive, it gives them a little bit of a high, and it can make you unsteady and fall if you work in geriatrics like I do, so we're concerned about drugs that run in too quickly, and it lasts a really long time. So it has this sort of hangover effect. In some situations, that's actually okay. Uh, in most of the times, we don't like that. So uh, in this uh, level of hierarchy, we, we tend to move towards drugs like Ativan and Xanax when they're needed because they run a little slower and they don't hang around very long. They move themselves out. So especially for our older people that have trouble with this, we, we like those aspects of it. Then we have the sedative hypnotics, those that calm us down, help us put, put us to sleep. And these are drugs like Tamazepam. It has a great trade name. It's called Restoril. Gosh, didn't that sound nice? Just Restoril, right? Uh, and that helps put us to sleep. We might get this up. Um, here we go. And then uh, Ambien. We use that a lot, frequently, Ambien. Lots of stories about strange Ambien side effects of people at night when they took drugs, to, this drug to send them to sleep, strange dreams. Uh, it's kind of bizarre, but we, we use it frequently. And then um, Lunesta. I don't think they run that commercial anymore. We used to have a little butterfly that would float around when you're sleeping. And it thought, wow, that looks so nice. The commercials make everything look so uh, fun but the other side effects of these things as well. And here are some of the, the you know, we're treating drug uh, effects like anxiety, fear, and worry, and insomnia in the case of the sleeping medications. The problem is that they do produce an addiction, um, not as, as bad as some of the previous ones, but they do. Uh, there is a tolerance issue in that you tend, they tend to wear off over time. And then, there's the replacement issue, and that is, you know, the scriptures have a lot to say about anxiety. Lots of places you could go and talk about that. I just, I love Philippians 4, and it's great to talk to my own soul or someone else when you feel anxious and just kind of walk through, what does God want me to do with this fear and the anxiety? Um, work with you with that. Or, I could take this little white pill over here, and I'll feel better for a while, but have I solved anything? No, the source is still there. Whatever is making you worried and anxious uh, is undealt with. And so you have to be careful that, especially as we're counseling, we're, we're, we're focused on the real issue. Oh, it might come up. So those are the medications that relax you. So the other class of drugs that improve feeling are the stimulants, or in this class we include the antidepressants. Uh, really look at some of the earlier forms of that, and we found the cocoa leaves. This is where cocaine really was in Coca-Cola. Can you believe that? 
in the turn of the century, um, took care of that quickly. We found out people were having issues. Um, so that's cocaine. So they're very strong stimulants. Um, then you look at some of the, the street drugs like amphetamine, methamphetamines, horrible, horrible uh, stimulant. We used in World War II, try to keep people alert and awake, uh, but terrible side effects. Um, and, the, you know, the problems with the, these is they have a, such a huge effect on, we know, especially one neurotransmitter, dopamine, and which is the color of life, uh, one of the transmitters that's used frequently in your brain that way. Uh, there was a lot of addiction, caused mania, if you know somebody who has drug issues related to that. And then, uh, now that we can do PET scanning, we realize that, that it does literally cause some brain problems, some brain changes. When I was in high school, I think we called it, uh, you fried your brain. That's the term we used, I don't know why. Uh, but as we, um, you know, as, as we realized that what was going on, you can see some of the shrinkage uh, and these gaps that would form uh, in a long, in person who's been abusing some of these drugs. And so we, we come to the antidepressants, which is a very popular class of drug, and probably the, I think it was the third most popular class of drugs in the U.S., so very highly prescribed. We talked last week about, we really don't know exactly how it has a long-term benefit. We know that, just by tissue samples, that we know it's affecting neurotransmitters like uh, serotonin particularly. And these drugs do more of effects on serotonin, the dopamine, and, and because of that, they're a lot less addictive than the others. Uh, we, there's older medications that, uh, drugs like Elevil, which is amitriptyline, uh, older medicine, but we still use that for neuropathies, so if you have uh, diabetes and tingling, we still use that drug frequently for that. Pamelora, doxepin, or older medicines. Now, the newer ones are very popular. Uh, these are drugs like Prozac. You may have heard of Prozac. And fluoxetine is the generic name. Sertraline, which is Zoloft. Uh, paroxetine, escitalopram, that's Paxil. Lexapro, we use a lot of Lexapro in geriatric settings. We, we like the lower side effect profile with some of, some of those. Effexor, the pharmacist had a nickname for Effexor. We used to call it side effectser <laughs> because it had so many effects and blood pressure issues that came along with it. Uh, and and effectser, and then you have Cymbalta and now Trintelix. These, these uh, antidepressants start working on other neurotransmitters as well, and not just on serotonin. We know it works on other uh, norepinephrine, other neurotransmitters, so they give you kind of a, a, a bigger effect, we think. Are they effective? It's very interesting if you look at the studies. Is it effective? Yeah, it helps, particularly in the short term, you, you do have this mood elevation. But if you do the studies and you compare it to placebo, and Dr. Hodges spent some time on that in his book, it's not that much better than placebo. At least the long-term effects are not. Um, in the, one of the essays that Dr. Lee Edmonds talks about a, a study that was done in 2017, and it used the Hamilton Depression Scale. And it's just a scale to see how bad is your depression and how do we measure it. It's got 52 points on it. And so they, they measured these, these drugs for a long period of time. And they found that the antidepressants worked better than the placebo. But only about, about two or four points different. So are they effective? Well, yeah. 
but are they any more better than a placebo? A little bit, at least in the longer term as you look at it. And so you have to be aware of that. Um, initially, especially initially, you'll feel a lift of some sort, but uh, we're going to talk about why that kind of wears itself out over time. Uh, they do have dependence issues in that once you've been on them long enough and you try to come off of them, uh, you, you find that difficult in a return of symptoms. Uh, there's also an issue of suicide with antidepressants, especially in teenagers. Dr. Henderson had a, an idea that made a lot of sense, really, in that uh, when your mood gets lifted, and yet your situation hasn't changed. So things around you are still terrible, but you don't feel so bad about it. And so you have this intermix of feelings, and her thought is that maybe the teenagers just don't know how to handle that, though, that intersection and thought to take their life. It's a very serious problem. Uh, weight loss, which some people wasn't such a bad thing, uh, is common here. We don't like that in the older generation, though. It does produce a type of tolerance and it does produce uh, homeostasis. I'm going to see if I can pull my slide up here. Here we are. Yeah. Maybe I won't step all over it this time. Okay. Ah, look at that. Caught it. Now we come to uh, why is it these medicines tend to wear out over time? And it comes up with the word that I like to talk about. It's called homeostasis. I have a talk that I just on homeostasis. And it's funny because it's the one word I'd like for everyone to remember. And I have met people that remember the word. They don't remember my name at all. We don't know who you are, but I know you spoke sometimes. But I do remember homeostasis. And so if you get that, you've done something good. Homeostasis defined is just a movement toward a stable state. God has created our body. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's wonderful how he, our bodies are made. To, it's sort of like being on a, on a, on a seesaw, teeter-totter, when you were in grade school. It's just this balancing effect uh, that happens and your body's so good. that If it's too hot in here, you will start to sweat. Brings your temperature down. If it's too cold you'll probably start to shiver, right? And your body temperature will come back up. That happens literally throughout your body, and, it's, and it does happen at the cellular level. You see it with uh, many of these psychotropic drugs as well. There's this balancing effect. I like to use the example of uh, medications, think about this, uh, do produce some type of imbalance. Uh, and I give the example of the acid reducers, so drugs, really popular drugs like Prilosec, you know, to cut the acid out. These are really strong medicines, and you have these, pro these proton pumps in your stomach that uh, push out acid. And these drugs like uh, Prilosec and Nexium do a really good job of stopping the acid, and for good reason. You may have an ulcer and there are things going on in your stomach, but they're really strong. It's interesting if you look at the morphology of the change because your body now has very little acid in it. What do you think it's trying to do? It's trying to make more acid, but it can't. And it's funny if you look, they even train the gastroenterologists when they do the scope. They can tell if someone's been on, on these drugs for, very, for a long period of time because there's changes that happen 
It's almost like putting your finger in a water hose that's flexible and it kind of, kind of, kind of enlarges. And so they look for these plaques and these little bulges in there. Um, and it's because your body's trying to produce more acid that it doesn't have and it doesn't think it needs. What happens, do you think, when you stop taking this medication? Ow, you get a lot of acid. Not the first day, because they're kind of longer acting. Second day, you'll start. Third day, it's, oh my goodness. But here's what happens. You begin to think, you know what? I'm just a guy that has a really messed up stomach. Because I, when I stop taking the drug, man, do I feel miserable. I, there must be something really wrong with my stomach. And actually, it's a, it's a drug effect that we know very well. This is part of what homeostasis does. Sleeping medicines are the same way. If you take sleeping medicines for very long, your body will stop making those natural sleep factors. And once you stop taking them, you don't go to sleep. <laughs> because your body has adjusted to what it's already getting. It recognizes it doesn't need to produce those things. We can also see that with uh, antidepressants, uh, just in, in the lab and looking at uh, the way the tissues are and what happens. It's really interesting. You have these neurons together, I'm getting real specific here, and uh, these serotonin reuptake inhibitors leave a lot of serotonin in between these neurons, so it, it spikes and activates a lot. It's how it lifts its mood. But your body responds to that. It's called downgrade. Uh, the, the neuron on the other side that's receiving this information starts to be sluggish. It changes so that it doesn't react very well because it's trying to balance itself out. And so these drugs over time tend to lose their effect because this change, this morphology change, and God intended it for our good. But it, what it does is it produces a dependence to function normally because if you stop taking the medicine, think about when you're on the seesaw, when your friend jumped off the other side. Probably weren't your friend anymore because you go crashing down. So when you stop taking these medicines, you get this rebound effect and you get really, really heavy odd. And I've talked to people and counseled people about uh, some people just want to cold turkey everything. Depends on the dose and how long you've been on it. Uh, but you can really have significant side effects when that happens. So we have to be very careful about that. But here's what happens. So you stop taking it and you feel really down. And you think, I'm just a person that's really depressed. That's really who I am. So you see what happens there? Your identity starts to change with that. If you be very careful when you're, you're counseling someone or ourselves and recognize that a lot of this is a drug effect that tends to wear off over time. We just have to be aware of what homeostasis does. What this does, it, it, require, it, it leads people to take higher doses because the antidepressants wear off. And so you end up increasing the dose. Eventually, they end up giving you more than one, so you're on two. Sometimes they come to me, I, they're on three different antidepressants, and then they'll add on another a drug to help boost all that effect because they, they just tend to lose uh, the, the effect over time. We call that cocktailing, and we spend a lot of time in my practice on how do we get people down gradually, and so it's part of my daily work that I do to see how to do that wisely. Uh, we do now know, and Dr. Hodge uh, mentions a lot of this in his book, I've mentioned it, that overuse of antidepressants in your bodies, we think the response to that overuse, you have all these drugs that are trying to push one uh, neurotransmitter, your body's trying to stop that, and it really produces this rapid cycling. 
And then you get a new diagnosis. Now, what you didn't know all this time is that you're bipolar. You just never knew it. And so there's this pattern. Dr. Hodges talks about some, uh, some stories. He's changed the names. Dr. Hendrickson is very honest in her book, Will Medicine Stop the Pain, of her story, very same story. Um, same thing happened to her. It's a very common thing. So we have to be careful. Uh, there are two different types of we think. We've given this name bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. Uh, we, we think bipolar 1 is likely due to the overuse of antidepressants and that uh, bipolar 2 is more something more pathology is going on with that. The, the, the goal here that I tell the counselors is that you never just stop a medicine. It depends on what the dose is, how long they're on. It's not the primary goal of counseling. And I hope this is helpful for you when you think about medicines that people take. Uh, the other side of that are drugs that clear confused thinking. And on this class of drugs, we have the antipsychotics. Again, you read the package inserts, they'll tell you we really don't know how these drugs really work. But we know it has these effects on these neurotransmitters. We know that they block dopamine. And some of the newer ones that also block another neurotransmitter, serotonin. Realize there are hundreds of different neurotransmitters in your body, lots of different subsets of each of these uh, medicines and the way they interact. Schizophrenia uh, and mental retardation. I have these asterisks up here simply because now with PET scanning, we really can see there's pathology. There's these real gaps that form in your brain. I work also with some group homes and love, love those guys uh, and ladies that are born with uh, some genetic problems or some saddled stories about what's happened to them and there's literal uh, brain damage that's occurred. Usually these medications are completely appropriate when something is broken and we're comfortable trying to help them. Uh, schizophrenia are things that, and bipolar too as well, you, you go through these periods where you're hearing voices and you're seeing things and these medicines tend to snap those out and uh, turn those off. So that's how they work. Some of these older medications, Haldol and Melaril, uh, we use mainly short-term. People who are just really having some crazy effects, one uh, sends them to the hospital and things. Thorazine was the first drug that uh, we know of that came out. Chlorpromazine is its proper name. Uh, 1955, I think, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Some of the newer antipsychotics are drugs like Zyprexa and Seroquel, Risperdal. These are just common medicines we see all the time. And Abilify and Geodon are newer ones, uh, sort of newer ones. We've got some other ones that we use, but these are very popular drugs. Some of the side effects that they have, you need to be aware of, Particularly with the older ones, we have these movement disorders. If you work in nursing, you, you probably know the term retardive dyskinesia, which is a, a movement disorder that results from long-term use of the older antipsychotics. So you, you, your fingers roll like this. You can't really stop it for very long. Uh, your body moves. You have a, a move in your mouth. And sadly, it's permanent. It doesn't go away. We have some medicines that help. But those movements uh, tend to have worsened the longer you take an antipsychotic uh, medication. We're going to mention that again in a second. Uh, some of these drugs produce a weight gain and dependence and diabetes because of the weight gain, we think. Um, and there's this long-term issue. And this is a real problem because we know long-term, because we have studies, the University of Iowa did a really long study to show that 
the longer you take these medicines, the, the gaps that form uh, don't get better. In fact, they, they get a little worse over time. So there's this kind of a gradual downward trend when you take them long term. Um, if you don't take anything, um, you're having a terrible time with hallucinations and we don't know what's going on with you. But at about two-year point in the studies, they show the body tends to normalize or stabilize, I would say, and gets a little bit better, uh, but doesn't get any worse. And so we have this problem of balancing how much do we use, how much we don't use. And so we're really, our goal is always for this class of drugs especially, is to use the lowest effective dose. We spend a lot of time on the lowest effective dose. So it's a real kind of a catch-22. The, the other class of drugs are the mood stabilizers. These are, all of these are the anti-seizure medicines to help slow down the these seizure, the impulses, the nerve transmissions in your brain. When we slow that down, we found that also helped with people who have rapid cycling. So these drugs get added for type 1 and type 2 bipolar drugs like Depakote, uh, Tegretol. Lithium is an old salt that we've used in the past. Side effects are sedation liver problems and long-term use, and lithium produced a type of low thyroid when you used it for very long. Whew, that's a lot of medicine to talk about. Probably a lot of questions, yeah. We're going to have to move on, though, and turn, go to the next point. Is uh, In biblical counseling, how do, we, how do we deal with this, and how do we look at it? And we want to remind ourselves, we want to look at the heart uh, rather than just the feelings only when you're dealing with these drugs. Uh, we're going to talk about the DSM and counseling when medication makes sense. And on your handouts on page four, I think I've left just a guide that would help you with that. Um, let's see if I have my notes. Yeah, I do. So the Bible teaches that feelings are the results of what we believe, we think, and our actions. Uh, just a few verses. John thirteen seventeen says, If you know these things, and this is the context of washing the disciples' feet and listening to his instruction, you're blessed. You could say blessed is happy. When you do them, you see the effect obedience has. Um, happy is he, Proverbs twenty nine nineteen. Happy is he who keeps the law. This idea of walking in step with the scriptures, the way God had intended for you to do, brings a type of joy and happiness to a world that's filled with trouble. Genesis seven uh, four seven. This is you know when Cain's offering isn't accepted, and he's uh, angry. And God says to him, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up if you do the right thing? So in counseling, we don't discount any of these things. We really look at what's going on in the heart, what's happening to you that is there something pathology, is there something not right there? We want you to get looked at by the physician. On the other hand, we're going to apply the scriptures to your situation and see how is it we can help uh, you, you look at these things biblically. Bad feelings are often God's warning system that something is wrong in a spiritual heart. Medication can mask the warning system so that the heart issues are not addressed. Let's say you're a thief or I mean, you're dealing with homosexuality and you, you're active in these things and you feel this guilt. Well, we can give you medicine to help you feel better about that. Do we want to do that? The world would. However, medications may be helpful and even wise in some situations where real pathology, literally something's broken, exists, and in harmful situations where someone's 
thinking of suicide and are having these uh, hallucinations. Emotional pain or distressing thoughts may be signs that something is not right. This is Laura Hendrickson, who made us to stop the pain. Something's wrong with our heart or the inner person. Our feelings aren't dysfunctional. They're not sick. Our feelings are doing just what they were created by God to do. They're showing us that we have a problem. To feel better, we need to fix the problem, not just make the pain go away. Deal with the real issue. Again, in a conference, Dr. Hendrickson, painful feelings are meant to motivate us. Catch the word, motivate us to change. When medicine masks painful feelings, there's no motivation to learn to deal with them in a more godly way. And when the medicine is discontinued, the painful feelings generally come back. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't resolved anything. We may have helped you, but we haven't solved anything. I'm always looking for a, a better case study than, than the one I've used here because uh, literally I talk to someone um, every month from the church and I deal with people, talk about their medicines almost every day at work. And some of them are through the counseling. Sometimes there'll be an issue with counseling. They'll, they'll ask me to, to talk to them about some of their medications. And, and some of you guys call me about this. Happy to talk to you. But I guess a good case study was uh, one of the guys from our church called me about his brother. I like this story really because it's, uh, it's very interesting. He called me. His brother uh, lives up in the, uh, the northwest and he was having a real issue with sadness. He couldn't get up um, out of his bed. He couldn't sleep at all. And he felt like uh, there was this dark rain cloud all around him. And he went to the Christian psychiatrist who gave him a prescription of some antidepressants. And he just wanted to know what he should do with them, if he should take them or not. He asked if I would talk to his brother. And I said, well, sure, uh, that's what I do. I'd be happy to talk to him about it. So I put my little counselor's hat on, you know. It's not foil. It's the hat. And I just start asking questions. Let's put the medicine aside here. Let's, not, let's talk about that later. Just tell me what's going on in your life. And he starts telling me how, how definitely depressed he is. He can't keep his thoughts together. He can't do any work. And he can't sleep. And he said, what, what should I do about it? And I said, okay, let's just keep going. Ask the right questions. Gather data on what's happening. And after enough questions, it really came out. <laughs> What had happened is the man was, was caught by his wife in his home having an adulterous affair. And he felt really bad about it. He probably called the wrong guy, I think. <laughs> I tried to explain to him, look, these feelings that God has given you are, are there to motivate you. They're there for a real reason to motivate you to change. I don't think you need to start anything until you deal with those. Why don't you take that prescription back to the Christian psychiatrist? Tell her what I've told you, what we've counseled, and let me know how things go. And literally, I think within 48 hours, he called me back. I guess he went the next morning, he went to his psychiatrist, and he relays the story to me of him telling her that, you know, this guy in pharmacist in Texas is telling me that these feelings are actually good for me and that I shouldn't take any medicines right now, and he wanted me to talk to you about it. And his response was that her face just changed, and she said, that sounds really good. <laughs> Why don't you not do that? Don't take the medicine. Let's, let's talk about this issue. Because God has given it there for a reason. Praise the Lord, the man went to counseling and got his marriage back together. I just love that story. I wonder what would have happened if we tried to medicate those feelings out of him. 
But he was really motivated to change, and he did. And praise the Lord, he put his family back together. So just wisdom on when to use these medications. Um, we want to talk just briefly about the DSM, uh, which is really the di diagnostic manual that is you know, based a lot about um, how we diagnose people. It's also a very important payment model for uh, healthcare and psychiatric industry. In your notes, you may have uh, this little history. In 1928, we discovered penicillin and realized that, hey, there's an infection and we have medicine to treat that. Isn't that cool? Revolutionized the way we handle disease and how we identified it. In the 30s and the 40s, that expanded. We started to identify diabetes and things and how to treat that, develop medicines to find that. And we developed this, this medical model where a disease, we find a disease, it produces symptoms. And the diagnosis, watch this, is named after the cause, what caused it. And that's what the name of your problem is. Uh, so there's a disease and then there are symptoms. Um, so out comes the DSM, one and two, which is kind of based on some Freudian theories on neurosis. And uh, Robert Whitaker writes this great article in the S ABC essays that I think is really helpful tracking kind of the, uh, what happened with all of this. But when we got to the DSM-3, there was a really big shift in 1980. It really attempted to adopt this medical model and apply it in psychiatry. They used the term biological psychiatry, and it really tried to look at it as something's, there's some pathology that's broken, and this is what we're going to do about it. The problem is that many of the symptoms have no pathology that you can identify. And so what they did is they named the diagnosis, the cause, is named after the symptoms. So we see the symptoms, and so we're going to give it a name as if there was a cause. Uh, drug companies picked up on this quickly, and Prozac came out in 1988, and the theory was, we talked about last week, was promoted there must be some chemical imbalance because we need this medical model to work. And we can sell a lot of drugs, by the way, if we do that. Um, and so this idea of this chemical imbalance is the cause. That's the problem. And we're simply correcting that. Again, last week, we, we, it's, that's been clearly refuted. There, there is no chemical imbalance that we can find. We're not saying that neurotransmitters aren't involved in that. Obviously, we know God is using those things uh, in our brain, in our body. We, we know that. This we know that that's not the problem, that you had an imbalance. Um, so the problem is, so you have this diagnostic manual of mental disorders, came out with the DSM-5 in 2013, and was highly criticized because they're calling what is normative, and they're giving it a label. And this was a problem. One of the biggest critics was the guy who was in charge of the DSM-4, that came out some years ago. He's like, what are you guys doing? This is just normative problems, and now you're giving a diagnosis. But yet, understand, there's a whole engine going here. If we, if we give you a diagnosis, then we have a whole paradigm of how to treat you, and it is uh, part of the payment model for good and bad. I mean, that, you know, there is some good in that, too. 157 disorders and syndromes. Most, most have no pathology uh, to refer to. And there's a poor consensus uh, among many psychiatrists about what should be in it, what should be not be in it. Normal behaviors uh, get labeled in here. 
I, I like to use this one. It's the uh, disruptive dysregulation disorder. Anybody know what that is? It's having a temper tantrum. Oh. <laughs> this is what your child does when they, they don't get their way. Can I tell you that my dad knew how to handle disruptive <laughs> dysregulation disorder? We didn't have that problem in my home, in our home. He took care of that in different ways. It, the issues are, specifically for Bible-believing Christians, is that the relabeling, relabeling of some diseases, um, sin, and giving it a, a disease name. So this is a real issue. So rather than being uh, a drunkard, the Bible would have things to say about drunkenness. Maybe uh, we, we give it a title, alcoholism, or pedophilic disorder, if there's sexual immorality happening. But what happens is it allows for types of blame shifting, where it's not simply my fault, it's because I have these things that are broken, and so I'm not really responsible. I left some quotes for you last week about why that is an issue, especially in counseling. It allows, it could allow, it soothes a guilty conscience rather than what a confrontation that might be needed. We have to be aware of a new assigned identity so a person thinks of them differently rather than thinking of them complete in Christ. What they're thinking of now is that, hey, I'm XYZ. They have this label on them. Um, Charles Hodges, I like some three guidelines of discernment on when you use medicine and how to look at these things. I like he, he mentions that. This is a gospel mental illness. You can find this online. He, he says, number one, don't call a disease what the Bible calls sin. It's important that we use the right terminology when we're addressing these things. Don't call it sin if the Bible doesn't cause it sin. We can't just add what we want in there. And that we should make an effort to look for pathology. So, you know, we always talk about if somebody's having uh, these issues and problems that they do get a good medical workup to find out if there's anything seriously going on that could be adding to that. Uh, when does medication make sense? When should we use medicine? When do we feel good about it? Well, we would do that if we, there's known pathology. Um, I told you I work with some of the some group homes that... Um, we work with a, a, a group of guys that just some tragic stories and uh, of how they got there, and then some is just genetic. But, but we know there's pathology there, uh, perfectly normal and right to give medicines to help them uh, think clearly. Maybe there's dangerous situations. So uh, people, are, like we mentioned, are having issues of suicide or, or they're active, having hallucinations. I mean, there's, there's places, and we're thankful for the medicines that we have. Uh, maybe there's a, uh, you're in counseling and, and you're doing some slow tapering, which is always how you try to work with these medicines. Honestly, it's what I do every day when I'm going through medicine reviews. Um, if it's unsuccessful, nothing wrong with just staying on the medicine for a season. No, don't. It's not anything we would judge you about at all. Um, when other physical issues are being addressed, so having your gallbladder taken out or something like this, this is not a good time to start changing up medicines. And uh, those are all secondary issues, so the right time. When it's just the wrong time in general, I'll tell you a secret. don't have to share it too much, but, you know, I, I'm kind of given the job when I come into the geriatric setting is, is are we on the lowest effective dose? And 
there's actually a whole system that I have to go through. And believe it or not, in the last eight years, the government actually jumped on my side, which was kind of interesting. Uh, they want me to be asking to get to the lowest dose and try to eventually get them off. There's a real push for that now because we see some of the side effects. So uh, if it's Christmas time, I'm not doing any of this stuff. <laughs> you know? Because you have this effect that happens to people when you try to take them off. Just enjoy Christmas, you know. Don't, don't, we'll deal with this later on. It's, you know, so it's not at a level that we're having issues unless someone's having active side effects uh, to the medication, and then we, then we move in. And then Dr. Hendrickson would talk about when she does counseling, and maybe one of the uh, folks that she's working with is just stuck, and they're having um, a hard time. She felt very comfortable with starting someone on a low dose of an antidepressant and using it for a short time while, while we're working on the spiritual issues, right? We're going through the scriptures, we're applying the word, we're doing discipleship, these things are in place, and then it, it, it's not a problem that I have to worry about. Um, we're going to probably close up with Colossians chapter 2. Uh, I'll tell you that I had about three stories that I wanted to talk about today. Um, just don't have time. Sometime I'll have to tell you some interesting things that happened along the way that help with some of the conclusions that we've come to. But we're going to close here with Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. And we talked about this in the beginning. We want to close with this idea. Uh, again, what do we have in Christ? One of the things that I wanted to remind us to is, remember when I talked about Placebo only works a little, uh, I mean, antidepressants only work a little bit better than placebo. Remember that? There's the idea that if, if I'm giving you hope, that's hard to beat. And so when someone comes along and, and you talk with them, you sit down, you do some counseling, you pray together, and you give them the hope, especially hope in Christ, you're doing some really valuable work. If any of us have been in that place, I have, where it's just hard to get up off the ground, it's that low, and somebody comes alongside you and says, hey, let's pray together about this. I'm telling you, uh, that kind of hope, it's hard to beat, right? Especially if it's set in Christ. Colossians 2, 9, remind, again, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Here's verse 9. Here are the reasons why you shouldn't follow worldly wisdom. Because in him, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. God Almighty, Christ in you, hope of glory. And in him, you have been made what? Complete. He is all that we need for spiritual, our spiritual life. And he is the head over all rule and authority. If that's true, then we can take all of our issues to him in prayer. Amen? Yeah. So uh, if y'all have some questions, uh, we probably can hang around a little bit and answer those. I know I usually get lots of questions. We can also do it after church or next week, whenever. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your kindness to us. Thank you for uh, the medicines you've provided, that we find them helpful. But again, Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray that in all things your name would be glorified, that we'd have a deeper understanding of your word and the gospel and the hope that it brings. Lord, I pray that we would have that in the forefront of our mind. We have a great Savior. Lord, I pray we put all of our trust in him. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.